and welcome to Office Hours, a podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Scott Clark. Today I'm talking with Mike Horton, J. Gresson Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Co-host of the White Horse Inn and editor of Modern Reformation Magazine, Mike is the author of many books, among them Christless Christianity and most recently The Gospel-Driven Life. These titles are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Today... However, we're here to talk about a remarkable series of volumes that Mike has published with Westminster John Knox Press. And I'm holding in my hands here, Mike, four volumes, uh, starting with— Perfect for door stops. (laughs) Yes, if you've got four doors, uh, then you've got four books. Covenant and Eschatology was the first volume, and uh, the subtitle is The Divine Drama. And then the second volume in the the series is— is it Lord co- and Servant. Lord and Servant. All right. There, I've got it in my hands. A Covenant Christology. Of course, if I'd looked at the subtitle, I would have gotten that. And then the third volume, Covenant and Salvation, Union with Christ. And the fourth volume and the award-winning volume from Christianity Today, People and Place, A Covenant Ecclesiology. So, uh, hi, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Great to be back. How did this remarkable series come about? When did you start it, and and why did you do these volumes? And uh, so just tell us the story behind these volumes. Uh, song comes to mind, too much time on my hands. <laughs> uh, the, actually, it was, it was uh, the, the, the burden of many years. I was not very good uh, at managing my time when I was doing my doctoral studies. While I was uh, in Oxford and finishing up my uh, my doctoral studies in historical theology, I I was actually working on Covenant and Eschatology, the first volume there, and doing a lot of reading and going to a lot of lectures that had absolutely nothing to do with my subject. And then uh, at a, a two-year postdoctoral stint at Yale, I was able to focus entirely on that work and did a lot of the research that I used subsequently for the other volumes. So uh, at first, I was just going to uh, to try to provide a, a sort of a prolegomena. That means things that you say before you say everything else, and to try to talk, try to think through what it what it is like to uh, think of theology as shaped by the drama of redemption. You know, we this is nothing new for us as Reformed folk. Uh, Gerhardus Voss says that the Bible is uh, is not a timeless handbook of ethics and doctrine, but a a dramatic book full of interest. And uh, that that is certainly what I focused on in that book. Uh, I also wanted to interact with a lot of contemporary scholarship, not only in theology but in philosophy. Uh, in in language uh, studies, there's this little thing called speech act theory uh, that uh, I was becoming enamored of. Talk about that, because not everybody may be familiar with speech act theory. That was one of the things I wanted to discuss. Yeah, well, it's basically uh, you know every philosophical scheme is uh, it is at most uh, a useful aid for theology. Uh, 
Francis Turretin said that uh, philosophy makes a great Hagar, but a terrible Sarah. <laughs> uh, it, it's the servant. It's the handmaiden. And, you know, bad philosophical presuppositions uh, as handmaidens can tilt our theology in one direction or the other. I think speech act theory, which derives uh, primarily from the work of J.L. Austin uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, has been very fruitful across a number of fields. Basically, uh, not to go into too much detail, speech act theory points out that we do a lot with language. There's this old picture theory of language that uh, for instance, horse, the word horse, uh, participates in hoarseness. There's a, mm-hmm. a, an eternal form uh, of horse. And that would be associated with? Plato, okay. for example, but it, very dominant in the modern era. And J.L. Austin uh, observed that we, we do a lot of things with words. It's not that words refer to things. We refer to things, and we do a lot of things other than referring when we use language. We use language to get things done. Well, surely that fits with the biblical uh, portrait of a God who speaks and things <laughs> happen. Yeah, like, like let a there, world. Let there be, yes. <laughs> yeah. And he does the same thing in, in Providence, upholding all things by the power of his word. Uh, in Christ, all things hold together. And then, of course, in redemption, where we're born again by the living and active powerful uh, Word of God. So uh, I think that speech act theory, uh, what, what's great about speech act theory is we have a tendency in theology today, mainstream academic theology, uh, toward uh, disparaging propositions and propositional truth. On the other hand, in evangelical circles, there is often, there's often been uh, a disparaging of anything else. Uh, all truth is comes in a propositional form. And so what I wanted to do uh, with speech act theory was say, look, in every uh, – it, it, we do a lot of things with words besides teaching and instructing and making claims and assertions about reality. We promise. We e- express our love to someone. But even in those expressions, there's a propositional content. That can be discerned. There's someone doing the loving. Yeah. There's an agreed notion of what love is, and there's and there's someone being loved. Right. So language language always has propositional truth, but it is more than making propositional statements. That's one thing that I found helpful about speech act theory. You you use the word enamored. Yeah. And people will hear that, and I'm just anticipating a criticism. Aha. He's seized on a secular philosophy. He's enamored of it, and now he's given over the control of theology to some alien secular idea that's controlling Reformed theology. And that, of course, that that engineer of the train now is going to drive the train right off the tracks and wreck the whole thing. Right. Well, that would be true if if I were willing to give a particular philosophical insight the status of master rather than servant. How do you do that? I mean, how do you make use of a, of a theory and, and not let it take over the train? Well, I think, first of all, by saying, does this help flesh out what the Scriptures are actually saying? Does this, does this way of putting things help me unpack biblical teaching, or 
Am I treating it as if it were itself a revealed truth? Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, read any any work of theology uh, in the past, not just theology, any devotional work, uh, any hymn. Mm. And it all comes from, uh, you, you, you know, you can d- discern in a lot of cases— the philosophical biases of of those folks, and as you know, in the Reformed tradition, we've had uh, even at the Westminster Assembly, you had people who were Aristotelian, people mm-hmm. who were Ramist, rabidly anti-Aristotelian. You had uh, Platonist, Pl- Platonic realists. You had um, a, a whole smattering of folks who were, uh, you know, Scotists. Thomists. I mean, even Calvin in his uh, commentary on Romans, right, when he goes to describe justification in a technical way, breaks out a fourfold causal uh, scheme by which to explain how sinners are justified. Which he which he got from the Gospel of John. <laughs> no, which he got from Aristotle. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it's, so, it's, so it's not the case that if you use an existing set of philosophical terms to express Christian truth— that necessarily Christian truth has been taken captive. No, but you've got to be very careful about it. Uh, you know, it, we have to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and uh, that's difficult. There, as you say, there. You know, there's a fine line there between uh, making reason the servant and the master. This really relates to that part of the discussion to which I wanted to get, which is: is theology really? properly an academic discipline? Or should it only be done devotionally and ecclesiastically? Mm. Now, that's, you know, been a big question down throughout throughout church history. Uh, yeah, I think that, uh, it, first of all, we come out of a historical context in which theology was an academic subject treated in the schools, and that's why they're often called the scholastics, either the, the medieval scholastics or the Protestant scholastics, uh, because theology was done in the schools. And people think that they have often spoke, spoken as if scholastic theology was um, necessarily, because it was scholastic, uh, corrupted and defective and something to be abolished or avoided. And the, the story is often told that you had sort of pristine theology, and then you had in the medieval church the growth of scholastic theology, and then you had the deliverance of theology from the academy and the Reformation, and then the corruption again of theology in the academy mm-hmm. in the 17th century. So what's wrong with that story? It's anti-intellectual. It, it basically—there's a fundamentalist impulse— and you, you even run into it in reform circles, a, a fundamentalist impulse that says, basically, if you think too much, you're going to go off. Um, Maybe even lose your faith. Even lose your faith. And as Jay Gresham Machen said, it, it's not when Christians think too much, it's when they become intellectually lazy. Hmm. Uh, so that, the faith can stand up to rigorous absolutely. intellectual investigation, discussion, and a- explanation. Absolutely it can. And so it, I think it has to—if we didn't have academic—let's uh, the, just say theology done in schools, we wouldn't have pastors who were mm-hmm. trained. You know, you, you let me give you an example. Uh, you know, Charles Finney decided—the 19th century revivalist decided that he was too good for seminary, mm-hmm. even though uh, his church was willing to pay uh, for him to go off to Princeton. Well, wouldn't that have been great? Wouldn't that have been a different <laughs> scenario? 
he 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 thought he to- told uh, his pastor that he he was not he didn't need all that book learning. Hmm. Um, the Holy Spirit would teach him everything, and uh, in any case, he he could teach himself. And it wasn't like he didn't have some formal education. No, exactly. He was a lawyer. Yeah. Uh, so oh, education's okay for law, but, right. when, but when it comes to theology, well, we'll just let the Spirit lead us. Well, and you see what what happened in his system. His whole systematic theology uh, is basically a gloss on Blackstone's law hmm. uh, textbook. It's it, it, he says things like uh, it is it is illegal for one person to die for another. So he jettisons the substitutionary atonement because he knows that a priori. He just knows that a priori. Uh, so no, we. If he'd gone to seminary, a good seminary like Princeton, he uh, uh, he would have he would have been taught out of that and realized uh, that that his pride was uh, unjustified as well as vicious, and uh, that's what happens. You know, you you realize that if you just teach yourself what you want to learn, mm. then then you don't really. You're not really exposed to the breadth of what you need need to know. In the nature of learning, really, it can't be done in most cases fully or well by oneself. I mean, no, I wish to this day that I could play the piano well. I can fake it because yeah, I, I've heard you I, do it. I play by ear, but but uh, I I uh, I tried to teach myself piano. There are lots of things that I've tried to teach myself, and it just didn't come out well. Because, you know, you end up just focusing on the things that interest you in that moment. And you don't know what you don't know, and there's no one there to tell you what you don't know and should learn. I mean, isn't learning in the nature of things dialogical? Yeah, exactly. And also, uh, you know, even secular sources can be of enormous benefit to Christians. Hmm. Uh, Look at what Calvin says in the Institutes against the Anabaptists who thought they were too spiritual to to study. Thomas Munzer once quipped, uh, Martin Luther wants to send the Holy Ghost to college. Uh, (laughs) And Martin Luther said about Munzer and the others, they've swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. Exactly. Luther always had the last word, and it was usually (laughs) clever. The Anabaptists believed that all secular sources of knowledge were just w- evil, and uh, we should avoid it at all costs. Which is Manichaean, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it, it, yeah, it, it, you have light over here and darkness over here. Which is true. I mean, in spiritual terms, that's true. But we've never looked at the world. I mean, Calvin, uh, of all of our theologians, was very well read, not only in the Fathers, but also in, in secular classical sources, and quoted them uh, approvingly, yep. uh, thoughtfully, intelligently. Uh, His first book was a commentary on Seneca's De work on clemency. Yeah. And, uh, and in addition to that, Calvin actually goes after the Anabaptists and the Institutes by saying, uh, what shall we say then of the secular writers? Were they madmen, the ancient jurists who created just laws for human happiness? With, uh, uh, with such great equity, what shall we say then about the mathematical science? Are they the are are, are they the ravings of madmen? What about those who devoted their whole lives to medicine for our physical good? What about uh, the great philosophers who, although uh, darkened in things earthly or in things heavenly, showed great wisdom in things earthly? And so Calvin says, uh, if we are to slight 
truth, wherever it may be found, even in these secular writers, we insult the Holy Spirit who gave them these gifts. We're talking with Mike Horton, and you're listening to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California. We're talking about a series of volumes published with Westminster John Knox Press. It's uh, Covenant and Salvation, Covenant and Eschatology, Lord and Servant, People and Place. And you can get these volumes from the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. We'll be right back. In the 17th century, John Bunyan gave us the character, Mr. Valiant for Truth. In the 20th century, God gave us another Mr. Valiant for Truth, J. Gresham Machen, the founder of Westminster Seminary. The spirit of Machen lives on at Westminster Seminary, California, where we've been fulfilling his vision of training men for ministry and preparing them to be expert in the Bible for 30 years. WSCAL.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. This is Office Hours. I'm Scott Clark, and we're talking to Mike Horton about uh, a series of volumes, academic volumes, leading up to a systematic theology, but they're not exactly themselves a systematic theology. These are suggestions, ideas, ways to go. How how would you describe these volumes? Yeah, the, the covenant... And eschatology uh, volume sort of announces what the the focus is. As you say, this isn't a systematic theology where it, you you really aren't uh, trying to find a shtick. <laughs> you know, you're not trying to find a way into your topic. Uh, you just you're, you're just trying to cover the basic doctrines of the faith in a simple, straightforward way. Dogmatics is a little different. Uh, and what I wanted to do in, in these books is treat uh, covenant not as a central dogma from which everything else is deduced, but to recognize covenant as the, the, the general structure uh, of the Scriptures, not as something we impose on the Scriptures, but something that the Scriptures themselves reveal as their architecture, mm. like architecture— of a, the architecture of a building, you don't see the framework all the time, but it's there. And if it's not there, uh, then the building falls apart. That's different from a central dogma. Uh, and so I, I, I see covenant as, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, uh, something that really integrates the whole of Scripture. And I wanted to see how, if we put that lens on our camera, how covenant um, structures our doctrine of God, our doctrine of creation, human beings, uh, uh, creation, providence, redemption, and the consummation in the church, and so forth. And but you want to say, don't you, that the uh, the lens is not something that you brought uh, to the task of theology, but the the lens is a lens that arose in a sense out of Scripture itself. I mean, after all. Right. The, the scriptures speak of uh, the covenant or covenants hundreds and hundreds of times in the Hebrew text and uh, more than a few times in the New Testament as well. Yeah. In fact, we, we, we call our Bibles the Old and New Testaments. Yeah, uh, which could be translated covenant, right? Yeah, it's the exactly. same word. Exactly. What is the state of evangelical theology today? You're trying to, uh, to engage the academy and uh, relate, uh, in a sense, classic Reformed covenantal theology to the contemporary academy. But 
What's the nature of the audience, I guess, to which you're speaking? What's happening? Well, I, I had two purposes. You have two minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, wow. I'm kidding. Go two, ahead. Uh, two purposes. The first was to try to uh, re- rejuvenate uh, classical covenant theology in contemporary reform discourse mm. uh, to, to, to show that sort of the, the continuing vitality of covenant theology. The second uh, aspect of it, my second concern, uh, was to continue the discussion about our theology. I think that sometimes we can get in the in a situation where uh, we just rest on the laurels of the past. Yeah. Uh, of course, the Bible is canonical, but sometimes we can treat periods in church history as semi-canonical. So Augustine is mm. canonical, or the Reformers are canonical, or the post-Reformation Reformed theologians are canonical, and so forth. I, I, I think, as Abraham Kuyper once said, a tradition becomes completely moribund if it is living off of the scriptural research and meditation of those in the past. It has to go back to the same wells, original wells, that those people went to. Mm. And uh, that's what the Reformers did. The whole Reformation was an ad fontes, back to the sources movement. And uh, so I'm a little concerned today that uh, on one hand, you have people who who do not care a bit about going back to the sources, if that means the Reformation. On the other hand, you have some people who who think that you've said everything when you've quoted Calvin's Institutes. Yeah, that's or, the end of everything. That's the end of everything. The, the, there's vitality in the Reformed tradition. The liberals think that they're the ones who are carrying on that vitality. But I think that I think that part of that is because we as conservatives have sort of uh, allowed them to take the microphone away and. Uh, we're in a new era now where, as Ken Myers says, everyone is welcome to the table. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is the Druids are, are coming <laughs> for dinner. Or um, there's no table. Or Yeah, it, exactly. And it's, it's just all conversation with no goal, no yeah. destination in mind, no point. And there's a, but there's a great openness. There's, there is, even in the academy, I've, I'm finding there's a, a great interest in uh, hearing about these things, Bob Godfrey often says that uh, say the old thing long enough and it'll become new again. Yeah. And uh, I I see that I see that all the time. You and I have conversations with brothers and sisters in our own circles sometimes who think you guys are just throwbacks to the 16th and 17th centuries. You you guys are just into that old theology. We're we're always reforming yeah. and. Yet we talk to evangelicals and mainline Protestants who say, I'm burned out on this thing going nowhere. I would like to have some more resources. I'd like to deepen my roots. I'd like to be a Christian. Mm. And uh, they haven't heard Reformed theology, except for—they think of Bart when you're talking about Reformed theology. They haven't heard Orthodox Reformed theology— uh, in many cases, ever. And that is where I'm finding a lot of interest um, 
as you are in the work that uh, the work that we're doing here at the seminary and and the work in these books in particular. I, I'm amazed that the reviews have have come in from Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, mainline Protestant journals, and very few, and a couple of evangelical journals, uh, but very few from our own circles. Mm, yeah, and that is just kind of interesting to me. It's interesting uh, that the volumes, in a sense, have found an audience. Well, they found the audience, in a sense, to which you were aiming. It wasn't as if you were seeking to ignore the confessional reform world, but you were trying to engage the broader world. And the broader world is is listening, which is kind of exciting and encouraging. Yeah, and I am too. I think one of the things that really was fun about this project was was learning so much from others with whom I disagreed fundamentally on major points, but yeah. nevertheless learning from them, having to go back when I saw a good argument for even even against the Christian faith, saw a good argument, I had to go back to the scriptures and back to our our rich theological resources to try to come up with a response, to try to think through how best to be prepared to give uh, to everyone an answer for the, the hope that we have. That exercise is essential. Um, and this is what Machen wanted to do, right? To engage the academy at the highest levels and as vigorously and thoughtfully as possible. Yeah, that, that is uh, certainly, I think, a goal that we all should aspire to. Machen has been a great model for, for all of us. You know, they still uh, uh, have students read Machen's Christianity and Liberalism at Harvard. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I think God, God bless them. That's God fantastic. bless them. I think that uh, I have no delusions of grandeur that these books will be assigned at Harvard. Uh, but they are being assigned, right? I mean, they are the, being assigned. People are reading them. Yeah, and uh, and not just in conservative institutions, right? Exactly. I, I, I think Scott, we have fundamentalists on the left and the right. We think of fundamentalism as. A, a movement, but it's more of a it's more of a state of mind. Uh, I run into uh, uh, some fundamentalists on the left who won't even give me a hearing unless I first presuppose uh, their uh, higher critical approach to the scriptures, their ideological critique of of uh, the scriptures as uh, privileging patriarchy and so forth, uh, and. and uh, the same exact mentality from people on the right. Mm. The, there is a wide group of people, though, uh, who are not of that fundamentalist temper, uh, who are uh, uh, willing to listen and, and have a conversation. You can't be wrong all the time. Cornelius Van Til said that we, we can't suppress the truth. Unbelievers can't suppress the truth all, all the, the time. time. Uh, there, it's like a it's like a, a beach ball. He said uh, that you you're, you're in the pool and you push it under and it pops, pops out up. over yeah. here and then it pops out over there. You can't help but tell the truth sometimes, and I, I think that that is really true. And we uh, are depriving ourselves uh, not only the opportunity to win people to Christ and to Christian positions, but also depriving ourselves of the opportunity 
to reinvigorate our own thinking yeah. when we opt out of these conversations. I remember when Covenant and Eschatology came out, and you got a response from someone who read it, who wrote to you privately, and I, I don't remember who it was, and it was a number of years ago, but uh, the writer said, if I had known that it was possible to be this intelligent and thoughtful, I would never have be—and be a conservative or be a confessional Christian, I would never have become a liberal. Hmm. Well, I yeah, I I, I don't—that's incredibly encouraging. And what's interesting about that is it signals an assumption on the part of folks in the main line that um, you have to leave your mind behind, if you will, and and not be thoughtful and not be intelligent if you want to be a a confessional— a Christian or or a conservative, and not to say that all conservatives are confessional. And, and in fact, one of the benefits of talking about being confessional is is that uh, it sort of gets us off of that that old paradigm, the, the old liberal conservative paradigm, in some ways. Yeah, I mean, we have a we have a great history here, Scott, uh, as you know full well. There's the, under King Edward in the 16th century, Martin Bootser and Peter Var- Martyr Vermilly were uh, were persuaded to come to uh, reinvigorate Oxford and Cambridge. Cambridge. And, and they did. And they came, they came and they did, and they rebuilt those schools, not only in theology, but in all uh, branches of learning. Oxford and Cambridge, which had really fallen into decay, uh, became centers for, uh, for learning and for the Reformed cause. Uh, our uh, uh, representatives from our tradition founded uh, Harvard, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown uh, in the United States. Uh, we have a rich tradition here uh, of theological education. Calvin founded an academy that today is the University of Geneva uh, and uh, also uh, helped uh, found and, and form the uh, University of Strasbourg. We we have always thought as as Reformed Christians that it is vital to have a learned ministry because the Word of Christ is meant to dwell in us richly. God has given uh, pastors and teachers to the church in order to uh, not just give us uh, something that can be squeezed into four spiritual laws mm-hmm. or into a, a fortune cookie— but in order to uh, uh, help us uh, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And anything that uh, I say that's of any use or value in these books is simply due to the fact that I have been able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ through shepherds, faithful shepherds and pastors and theologians in the past. Well, that's a great place to end. We've been talking with Mike Horton about a series of four volumes that he published with Westminster John Knox Press. They are, uh, oh, there we go, (laughs) Covenant in Eschatology, the Divine Drama, Lord and Servant, a Covenant Christology, Covenant and Salvation, Union with Christ, People in Place, a Covenant Ecclesiology. These volumes are available from the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, at wscal.edu slash bookstore. Thanks, Mike, and thanks for being with us today. Glad to be with you, and I'll get you an electronic bell next time. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll learn to do it.
That's it for this edition of Office Hours. Thanks to our producer, Robert Riccio, to Katie Wagonmaker in the bookstore, to Young Me for graphics, and to Adam Klaus for technical assistance. We'll be back next time for another episode. You can listen to Office Hours online at wscal.edu slash officehours, or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to wscal.edu slash officehours. If you want to hear from you, email us at officehours at wscal.edu. That's officehours, one word, at wscal.edu. For more information about this program or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.